Dotnet Rocks episode 913 with guest Kim Tripp. Recorded live Friday, September 13th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard here for your entertainment and edutainment. Hey, man, what's happening over there in Vancouver today? I have been, I've been working my brains out. You know, we only get, get a few weeks at home every so often before the fall tour really takes off. Yeah. And by the time this show starts, we'll be in the midst of it. We will be. So, uh, you know, we're getting a few pre-records done. You're going to get a whole bunch of in-person shows coming up, which is good fun. But, you know, we're up to our eyeballs in road trips and yeah. things, my friend. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. uh, by the time this show is published, we've already done the three stops in the UK. Right. Gone to London and Bristol and Manchester. Mm -hmm. And the following week, the second week of October, we're in Ireland. Yep. Uh, Galway, Belfast, and Dublin. I got some new friends in Dublin that I just made. We're going to be hanging out with over there, Damien Dempsey and the crew. Yeah. And then we're going to be going to uh, uh, Dev Intersection. Yep. Uh, we did the end of all this running around. We go, we spend a week at Dev Intersections, the MGM Grand. And if you haven't heard about it, you need to hear about it. Go to devintersection.com. Yep. And, uh, when you register, register with .NET Rocks and you get 50 bucks off and you'll yep. see us. And any, if you sign up for the conference and a workshop, we'll give you an Xbox One. All sorts of good stuff. We yeah, love all to sorts give away stuff. stuff. And then the week after that is Ordev. Ordev. We're, we're going to be in Sweden. We missed it last year because of the road trip, but we're getting it fit in this year. Well, you know, they have such great selections of scotch in Sweden. We can't stay away, (laughs) can we? (laughs) The the green lion. Oh, my goodness. And I put together that scotch flight with uh, Nolan Bushnell and all those crazy guys. They always have the most amazing keynotes. You know who's keynoting at Ordev this year? No, tell me. Randall from XKCD. No way. Randall is going to be there. Wow. And he he, he just did this. I'll include a link to this, but he did this comic. It totally got to me. It was about an orchid because orchids shape themselves to be pollinated by specific bees. Hmm. And so they did their uh, shape is designed to look like a bee, a female bee that the bee would want to mate with. Huh. And so there's this orchid that's still in the form of this bee that doesn't exist anymore. Don't those orchids have a dress code? They really don't. You know, They're kind of naked. They, they, you know. It's crazy. Anyway, it's a what great comic. I'll, I'll include a link to it. Anyway, I can't wait to shake that guy's hand. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. Or it's going to be a riot. And then, I can't believe I'm saying this, we're doing another U.S. road yeah, trip. Yeah, we're doing a U.S. road trip. Yes. Starting so, at the launch in November. Yeah. The Visual Studio launch is in the second week of November. It's right. in New York. And then we're hopping in an RV and we're going to drive down the eastern seaboard. The dates will be published. And by the time you've heard the show, the dates will all be out there. And yeah. You can, this is, this is the first up. time we've announced it, but not the first time you've heard about it, probably. Yeah. It's out there. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to do that eastern seaboard before Thanksgiving. Yep. Central region in uh, December. December. Yep. And then in January, West Coast. Yep. 20 cities in total. Going to be fun. It's going to be crazy. And it also looks like we're going to be able to do a bunch of humanitarian toolbox hackathons along the way. How's that going? 
really, really well. You know, we've got three projects out in the wild now being tested by disaster relief professionals. We've got about 40 more in the hopper. There is a ton of work to do. Wow. And we're being organized as a formal charity so that we can actually take donations. It's becoming a thing. That's really, really cool. Congratulations on Thanks, that success. Buddy. It's been man. a lot of work. And it came out of our last year's road trip, of the 2012 road trip. Yep, that's right. Uh, we're going to be doing some video blogging this time, I think. Oh, yeah. I think it. I think it's time. I think it's yeah. time to use some cameras and, and start doing some of that stuff. So yeah. that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Uh, what else do we have to announce? There's uh, not. That's not much else, huh? Yeah, that drags us all the way into 2014, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're going to be at Code Mash. You know? Of course, we will be. Yep. Can't miss Code Mash. I think there'll be a hackathon there, too. So, yeah. All it's right. A, good it's enough. a lot. Let's let's get get on with it, shall we? Yes. Better know framework. Better know me. All right, buddy, what do you got? Your framework? <laughs> so there's days where I think I am a framework. <laughs> oh, oh, Richard goodness. framework. I feel I've been a machine. You, you know, are a machine. Answer to your question, you know, four minutes ago when we started this show, <laughs> I've been really busy. I was going to tell you about what I'm doing, but there's no time. I'm sorry. We'll do that on the next show. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway. So, uh, in honor of our guests, I figured I would call out um, a series of blog posts that uh, Kim uh, Tripp and Paul Randall did at SQL Skills called The Accidental DBA. And there's so much stuff. There's 30 days of content. I mean, I'll let her talk about it, but there is just so much stuff there that it'll take you... uh, a long time to get through it all. And it's an education to say the least. Uh, And, you know, in, I I went and I looked at it and I glanced over it. My eyes glazed over as they usually do. And uh, (laughs) I realized that there's way more information than I can uh, consume there in, you know, five minutes. So, oh my God. But, you know, it it speaks to that real core issue of if you're someone in that situation where you're now responsible for the database, uh, there's some help out there for you. Yeah, lots and lots of good stuff. So it was, I guess this is, uh, and she'll talk about it too, 30 days of SQL goodness. Yeah. Cool. By the way, that's at tinyurl.com slash theaccidentaldba. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 876, and that's the one we did about uh, SQL Server 2012 when we talked to Kevin Klein. Mm -hmm. This comment comes from Philip Derbeko, who says, I listen to your show on my way to and from work. The good thing is that I enjoy the way. The bad is that I never listen to the news anymore. That's Ah. not that bad, Philip. You haven't missed much. You really don't want to hear the news. Yeah, bad. I wanted to give my two cents with respect to flashcards, and I think he's actually talking about the um, Fusion I.O., the the PCIe cards with very, very fast storage uh, discussed in this show. It is true that putting those cards into the server does wonders to the latency of data access. However, it has a great impact on data protection and manageability. It is important to remember that this big storage array provides a number of services such as RAID protection, snapshots, clones, and replications. Mm. Another issue to comment is that additional card capacity is not necessarily used to extend card life. Due to its characteristics, Flash has to be erased in big chunks before any new data can be written in its place. This means that flashcards have a sort of logging file system over their flashes. Additional space will provide more opportunities to provide garbage collection, i.e. free to chunk and to erase for subsequent writes. The operation is called write amplification, and it means how many I.O. operations a given card has to perform in order to do a given write operation. The more additional space there are, the faster and simpler write operations can be performed. I think I heard that. 
Well, it just sort of speaks to these aren't hard drives. They have different rules. Right. And we've built this infrastructure to make it largely invisible to you, but you need to be cognizant of it. Mm -hmm. And the most relevant thing is that, yeah, these things fail too. So if it's your only storage, you know, all the backup rules still apply. You better have other copies. And I admit they are getting better and better, not only at their lifespan, and also at reporting when they're starting to have problems. So they actually build in space to have chunks of these cards fail, and then they switch them over automatically and mm. will let you know. It's very much the same as smart. And again, we can have Kim talk about this too. But sure. over on the on the run-ass side, we've been having lots of conversation about using SSDs and cards like Fusion IO in the enterprise. And the rules are pretty strict because we expect our data to have good integrity. And so Philip's right. addressing that, and I can't argue with him. It's all true. And needs to be I'm chomping on. at the bit here. I want to say something. Hang on. Get back. <laughs> get this, hold on there, Kimmy. Back. All right. All right. So, Philip, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, Android and iOS. And those great apps are built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're releasing now 40-plus new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, still giving you 200 minutes of access. Wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including SQL several Server. SQL skills courses... That's right. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the show someone who always makes my brain hurt, Kimberly Tripp. Kimberly is a SQL Server MVP and a Microsoft Regional Director. And oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to read a whole page of bio. (laughs) Are you kidding me? If you don't know who Kim Tripp is, you're listening to the wrong show. Welcome, Kimberly. She's a SQL goddess. Come on she's now. The SQL goddess. She is. You're uh, she's currently focused on SQL Server 2012 content, uh, you know, top tech ed speaker. That's really not much more I need to say about that. Kimberly, welcome. Hey, thanks, Carl. Hi, Richard. Hi there. You are well qualified. Which, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Philip's comment? Yeah, a little bit. Just, just because it, it's, it's something that we're going to talk about even today and something that we've gone back and forth so many times about, which is, you know, killing a problem with iron. And I've seen a lot of people say that solid state drives mean you don't have to think about database design. If you have a problem with fragmentation, who cares? Put it on solid state and you'll solve those problems. And and there is some truth to that. Don't get me wrong. I, uh, rearchitecting a better design can be a very expensive, very daunting uh, prospect for a, a large database. And putting it on solid state might actually solve some of the problems that you're having without having to rearchitect. So I agree with that. But I am finding that some people are starting to say design doesn't matter. Right. That, that the physical structure of the database is irrelevant. Just throw solid state at it and you won't have any issues. And I just recorded, literally, I just finished yesterday a course for Pluralsight called Why Physical Database Design Matters. Nice. And it's, it's exactly this discussion on all these little things that people don't think about in their table structures that when that gets turned into the on-disk structures in SQL Server, they could have some incredible inefficiency. 
processes. So taking just a logical model and throwing it at any database and letting whatever modeling tool they're using do the physical implementation can sometimes be a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, sorry, I was chomping at the bit because I just, I hear that a lot, you know, solid state, don't worry about anything else, just, you know, bigger, better, faster, more, and all your problems are gone. And you're just, you're shifting the problem. You're, you're making the problem different and you're not doing root cause analysis and, and you might help some aspects, but you usually don't solve the problem. You know, I've run into exactly the same issue around making websites go fast, where we could throw hardware at it to postpone the problem. Like, you know, typically by the time, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, by the time I get a call, by the time you get a call, they're in big trouble. Like, day-to-day operations are no longer being achieved because things are so slow. And then they want, and they want to fix today, right? Like, they want that big red button that goes, oh, go faster. Thanks very much. And SSDs, can provide that to some degree, but you are just postponing the problem for a little while. The real thing here is, okay, I'll give you the patch, and now let's sit down and fix the bigger issue that's going to stop this from coming back for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And that sometimes just doesn't get done. And you get to a point where you throw more hardware at it, more hardware at it, more hardware at it, and then you still can't scale. And now you have a you know, more users, a bigger environment, a lot more data to deal with because you've let this problem go a couple of years. And now it's really, really difficult to solve. And you're right. That, that's usually when I'm called in and I kind of look at a tangled web of all sorts of problems that need to be fixed. And, and you're right. There's no single faster magic bullet. And you got to kind of take a step back and kill as many problems individual as you can slowly and, and try to get things going. And, and sometimes it's, it's really, really hard to do because if, if it's a fundamental schema problem, you might have to change all the stored procedures, triggers, functions, views, assemblies, the application. Everything might need to be changed to fix that schema problem. So it, it can be a really, really tough, challenging problem. Just being able to back. Yeah. It's one of those things where you are actually still digging the hole. I mean, I, I've said that to a customer. It's like, you understand. You're still <laughs> digging a hole here, right? You're going deeper and deeper underground. Just because we're able to keep the walls of the hole from caving in on you doesn't mean we're not still digging it. Did you want to go the other way and actually get things to be better? No, absolutely. Totally agreed. <laughs> and But at the same time, do you like the Fusion IO devices? Are you happy with SSDs? Like, Do you see them not just as a, as a quick fix, but as a, a part of the new strategy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the comment that that reader made or listener made was absolutely accurate. It, it, it might solve performance problems, but you still have to make sure that you add redundancy. It doesn't negate your backup strategy, but they absolutely for certain environments are a necessity. The one thing that I see as a common problem is, is where people put their SSDs. Yeah, that was, a lot of, that's what I was waiting for, Kim. Because where, yeah. yeah, what should go on them? It's a, it's a great question. And, and you really have to analyze your server's IO load to get some insight into where you have your biggest IO problems and where you have your biggest latencies. But 
what is most likely is that the data portion of the database is going to benefit most from SSDs, not TempDB and not the transaction log, which is kind of ironic. A, a lot of people will say to me, the log is, is where you have to have great and very fast write throughput. And that's true, but the log is also generally sequential writes. And so you won't see as big of a benefit by throwing the log on SSD as you would by throwing the data portion, which is usually where you're doing a lot more random reads mm. to get the data into cache. But uh, having said that, consolidation and virtualization is a whole nother discussion that's really interesting because I've, uh, sorry. Well, yeah, before you jump off that bridge, let me uh, ask you just real quick. Now there's, when I look at SSDs, some of these SSDs don't fall naturally into the you know the the sixty four multiple. You know they're like a you you'd see a five hundred or a four hundred gig SSD rather than a you know a five twelve. And it, it, is that because the the end of it is less uh, safe? You know the the last part of it. You know why is that? Why do people go with something that's slightly truncated from the natural multiple of sixty four, sixteen, or whatever? I actually, I'm not sure. Richard, do you have a response to that? So one of the things they figured out as they started to mature SSDs is that the, the write blocks, the various blocks on of these flash drives, they do wear out. And so they've now kept a buffer of 10% or so of spare blocks. So as, as they start to get worn and they try and write on them really evenly so that they wear evenly, as they start to fail, they can switch over to the backup block. So, you know, a 240 gig SSD is actually a 256 gig. They've just held 16 gig in reserve to cover off the failed blocks, keep the device use, working for longer, and then doing smart reports to let you know blocks are starting to fail the same way that a regular hard drive has sector failures. Nice. So that's actually safer to use uh, one that's not that doesn't fall right along uh, a, a 64 gig line. Yeah, you generally find their later models. They it, it's just that SSD manufacturers have gotten smarter and they've learned they've written better firmware inside of their drives to use their drives more effectively. So back to you, Kim. Um, the, you said TempDB is not going to benefit greatly. Isn't that where the indexing is, or is that somewhere else? No, TempDB is where temporary work storage is used. If you're doing, for example, a hash join, SQL Server has a, a two-phase approach to that, a build phase and a probe phase, and that build structure essentially is a work table that's put in TempDB. So okay. you get a lot of structures in TempDB that SQL Server is using during query processing and execution. Um, somebody might create a temporary structure, a temp table, and throw the data into TempDB. And, and it is true that TempDB can be very active, but TempDB is going to use memory. It's not necessarily going to go to disk unless they have to. And, and and so, you know, you really want to focus on where you're having the biggest IO bottlenecks. And, and the data portion is likely to be that. But what I have seen is in some virtualization and consolidation environments, people have started to put five, six, eight, ten different databases on the same server. And mm-hmm. then they end up having like drive L to be the log drive. And they put all six databases logs on the same drive. Huh. And the log is supposed to be sequential IOs. But when you throw five transaction logs to the same drive, you've created a massive amount of random IO for something that should be sequential. Got it. And there, yeah, there is where SSDs can be really useful. But you just, you need to know your hardware. You need to do some IO analysis. Um, 
you just, you really have to get some insight into where you're having the biggest problems and then use them appropriately. But you still can't get away from your backups. You want to make sure that whatever hardware you're using is reliable. You want to get some insight into the different options that are available. You know, every vendor is different. There's a, a lot of different, um, configurations that are possible. And even, you know, some of the testing scenarios that we've had in our uh, rack in the, the garage, because, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody has a rack yeah, in the who garage. Who doesn't? <laughs> well, I know I do. <laughs> well, exactly. See, I knew this would be common for you guys. But, <laughs> but you know, the, the testing that you might be doing, it, it's, it's very interesting because we've had a couple of failures as well. So you just, you need to make sure that, you know, you're using reputable hardware and you, just like any other hardware, have to think about MTBF and you want to make sure that you're taking the right precautions to protect that data. So it's it's not new. It's been around now for a while, but it's starting to become a lot more prevalent. I, I agree with that. So the other thing that I think attacks physical database design these days, and it, it's coming from developers, is this NoSQL movement or, or rather the automation around ORMs where I can just generate a database now. It's uh, it's code first rather than uh, than data first. Have yeah, you run that, into projects like this? Well, it, it it's my favorite line. It's like, let's just get it done. We'll deal with performance later. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and you want to, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to show something. You want the application. You want people to see what the end result is going to be with as little work as possible. And, you know, I, my I favorite, get that. My favorite line is, why is it taking so long? My brother could do this in Access. We'd be done by now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Access. Let's not oh, go there. <laughs> I No, I agree. It's everybody wants things to be done faster with less work. And, and I get that. I totally get that. But at the same time, if you're trying to create an application that you want to have long-term scalability with, the problem is you need to understand the tool where that database is going. And, and just throwing any old schema or a schema that could be thrown at Oracle or SQL Server or NoSQL or DB2. The problem is those applications are often kind of jack of all trades, master of none. And they're using, you know, very basic SQL syntax. They're not leveraging anything that's platform specific. And they're certainly not kind of analyzing the structures for anything that might be problematic in that platform. And that's where I see some major problems. If you really understand the platform, if you know what's going on in SQL Server, you'll probably do some things to your physical design to better work with that platform and to be more scalable. And it's just something that I don't think people are thinking about because they don't think it matters. And and there's it's not their fault either. It's not like something jumps out and says, wait a minute, that was a really crappy table design. That's not going to work well. You know, it, that doesn't happen. You don't get that information until you're six months down the road in production, thousands of users, and the proverbial stuff has hit the fan. Mm. And you're like, what's going on? And you just, it's, it's not intuitive. It's not obvious. And none of these tools tend to call any of these things out. They want to, they want to work generically. They want to work quickly. They want to quote unquote, keep it simple. And that's all at the expense of performance and sometimes even 
later manageability or changing of that application. Well, you talk about normal form violations like, you know, creating data one, data two, data three columns inside of a table. <laughs> like that because it's simpler than figuring out the joins and actually distributing the data properly. And then the reporting is a nightmare. Writing queries is a nightmare. Like you have to cover up that mistake with so much code. Yeah, absolutely. I, a lot of people go with name value pairs where, you know, the different attributes end up becoming rows instead of columns, mm -hmm. which can, it can also be incredibly effective, but they tend, those tables that use name value pairs, they tend to grow very quickly and they become management nightmares. So there actually are different approaches for dealing with that kind of schema. And SQL Server 2008 added something called sparse columns. Now, don't get me wrong. They are not the quote unquote magic solution. They're not something that I want, you know, everybody to start thinking, Oh my God, I need sparse columns. But I'm just saying, if you know the platform, there might be an option that's platform specific that if you have the right environment, you might be able to leverage them. They might be more efficient and they might offer you more options than, you know, just assuming that we should go with columns or just as assuming that we should go with name value pairs. Cause that whole, uh, extensible, flexible schema debate. Mm -hmm. There's right. really a whole bunch of different strategies for that. Well, the whole NoSQL movement sort of uh, proved that that can work. What, what do you think about that? Have you had actually deployed a NoSQL database successfully in, in place of uh, a relational database? Yeah, so the bad news is I, I don't do really much at all with NoSQL. I have not deployed or worked on any implementations. I tend to be the cleaner <laughs> that comes into the SQL implementations where things haven't been mm. implemented well. But but it's definitely an interesting debate. I'm just not the right person for the NoSQL side. Right. Yeah, I got to imagine your customers are big SQL Server folks. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely certain applications that people are looking at using NoSQL for, but often the types of applications that I've been working with, I, I mean, for a long time, NoSQL didn't have all of the acid properties. It didn't have, you know, triggers. It didn't, it, there were just a lot of things missing, which uh, some of those things have been added and they are um, available. So I guess the the end result is there's different ways to use these different types of databases. But personally, I tend to focus more on, you know, SQL Server implementations and the problems that they might be running into. Performance is one of my number one things. Sure. And partitioning. Partitioning is probably the other topic that I, I focus on the most. You know, we forget, too, that, you know, in all this talk about, you know, the cloud and Microsoft wants to push everybody to Azure, there's still tons and tons and tons of, of companies running their own databases, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, they have a, a, a large investment in their infrastructure, in their DBA team. They are nervous about some of the press that cloud-based solutions have had with availability and downtime and accessibility. I, I can right. even think of a, a .NET Rock show that had some issues a while back. You know, yeah. you know I, I think there's companies out there that just aren't quite ready to trust their infrastructure to someone else. Sure. And security is certainly another big issue. So yeah, I, certainly. I think it's going to be a while before a lot of my customers uh, go the route of Azure. And, and I would even argue the if side of that. And, and on the other side, it's probably never been easier to set up a SQL server 
on your own on your own iron, <laughs> which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah. Um, it, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the installation, the creation of a database, the creation of tables, the creation of stored procedures. To be honest. Transact SQL and, and understanding some basic SQL, there's tons of references out there that can get you started very, very quickly. And, mm. and you can, you can get something up and running on today's hardware that looks pretty impressive, even if it's absolute, you know, bleep. It doesn't, it doesn't matter kind of what your schema looks like when you only have two users and 400 rows. It, you can get away with a lot. And, and, you know, like I said, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It gives you right. a false sense of security that whatever you've designed is just going to work. And in fact, it, it might not when you do have hundreds of users or gigabytes or, for that matter, terabytes of data. Petabytes, even. <laughs> Petabytes. Exabytes, Exabytes. Carl. Where are you? Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to defragment my brain. <laughs> Which, by the way, still hurts from the last Kim Trip interview. <laughs> no, Paul just walked in. I'm he can help you with defragmentation. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we do that, let me tell you about Telerik Reporting, the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud applications. It is the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word. All in a single, seamless package. Visit Telerik.com slash reports to download a trial copy. Telerik reporting, it's fast, easy, and interactive. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. So who's our... Winner today, buddy. Our winner today is Pete Eaton. Congratulations, Pete. Oh, I got, got the clappers. clappers. Clap. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Pete Eaton. Nice. What do you say, Kim? Pete Eaton. Congrats. Congratulations, Pete Eaton. Yeah. And we're also giving away music. And uh, today's CD is Been A While. This is my new solo album in which the, uh, the John Schofield joins me for a song. There's uh, six original tunes and three covers on there, including the funkiest version of Drive My Car anyone's ever heard. So uh, that's been a while. Ed, by the way, that's available at iTunes and Amazon. You can go to carlfranklin.com. Check it out. The winner, Jeremy Dunlap. Congratulations, Jeremy. Jeremy will be sending you a disc. Because you remember those things people used to use? Discs, CDs? They, so so strange. Sort of round and metallic, and you put them in. Yeah, well, we'll send you one of those. And almost 30 years old, yeah. Almost those 30 things. years old. Nobody buys those things anymore. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be uh we'll be we'll be there. So, Jeremy and Pete, congratulations. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members and every show we give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection, which is everything they do in one box. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member but you have to be a member to win indeed yeah so we like to ask our guests hey kim and paul if you're there if yeah, you, you had five thousand dollars to spend on toys you know like last month what would you buy oh this is a tough one to be honest uh this is actually quite the debate in our house right now 
we still have a rear projection TV. <laughs> that needs to go. Wow. <laughs> I, I still, Paul and I jokingly call it our, our Tuesday TV because it's, I, I can't even remember. It must be 15 or 16 years old and it, it still works. It's still decent, but of course it's, it's not high def. It's high def capable and didn't even get that. I, to be honest, I, I have been looking at TVs now for a little while and, and even though it's not computer related, I, I think if I had 5,000, I would definitely be putting it towards a nice big flat screen, high def, possibly 3D. TV and and that's would, my lame. What would you watch? What do you watch that's so awesome? You need all that TV stuff. Um, I, there's some shows that I like on TV that I, I'm a big fan of. Breaking Bad, which is just about to uh, end the series. Um, there's some great shows and movies. I, we actually watch a lot of movies, and I, I think it's the movies that are the most interesting. But you know, Game of Thrones, although I'm not caught up on that, is a great one. The Tudors, I loved the Tudors. Um, I'm a Dexter fan. It's not as good as it used to be, but I'm definitely a Dexter fan. Um, so there's, you know, there's a few shows that I like and TiVo is just the greatest thing ever to be able to watch it when we want and cut out the commercials for the, the non, you know, HBO Showtime shows. And so, you know, it's, it's a nice way to turn off your brain and relax for the day because we all do so much geeky stuff during the day. And, and so I like, you know, I like that hour or so at night to relax. You're going to need a 4K monitor. Yeah, I oh, you should see the one that I've been looking at. <laughs> <laughs> I don't real... worry about 3D, but I think the 4K, the ultra high resolution stuff is probably in your future. Yeah, there's a 4K 3D uh, LG TV that's something like 84 inches. <laughs> okay, that's going to be a little bit more than 5,000 bucks. But, I know, you know I maybe know. they'll make a down payment on it anyway. Exactly. That's why the 5,000 is really attractive. <laughs> oh, so. If I had $5,000, I'd probably buy a new video camera so I could make content. This is where my brain goes. Yeah. Well, I was thinking you ought to, you, speaking of camera equipment, I mean, Ms. Tripp, you have a serious set of camera gear, too. I half expected you'd be talking about what camera you don't own yet. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, my favorite thing is underwater photography. And once you invest in a, a decent housing for your underwater camera, you're kind of stuck with it for a while because the the housings are quite expensive. So mm. I, I could probably go that direction, but I'm I'm quite pleased with some of the, the shots I've been getting recently with mine. So I'm I I think I'm another year or so with this this rig, even though you're right. I could I could totally scrap it for something that's probably way better, but I'm I'm quite happy right now. But you're right. It's it there's always some gadget. I've been actually shooting video with my GoPro Hmm. mounted on the cold shoe of the housing that is my still camera. So I shoot actually video at the same time that I'm shooting stills. And the video quality is fun, but it's the stills that are really attractive. So what you need is a remote control submarine with the camera inside (laughs) it. So then you can control it from your iPad, you know, and just tool around in the ocean, taking pictures of fish. That's not a bad idea. That I, wouldn't I, be too over the top. No. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Of course. I like diving, though. I, I got, like diving. I got good like being suggestions. in there. I, I, you're, not, you're not far from the truth there, buddy, either. I mean, the biggest problem about the whole dive camera thing is that they don't get to be in the picture because they're busy taking the pictures. So what if you had a drone that just followed you around with the camera running all the time? 
and, you know, took your cues on what to take shots of and kept you in the picture. You know, I've got to tell you a story because when we were in, we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, we were in Hawaii and Hawaii is kind of known for this thing called the Manta Night Dive. And it's, it's a dive. I've done it now. It's one of my favorite dives in the world. I think I've done it 11 or 12 times. So I'm a huge fan of this Manta Night Dive. You go down to about 40 feet, you go with extra weight so that you're really heavily weighted and you just sit on the bottom. You put a light on your head and that attracts plankton and mantas are filter feeders. So they kind of dance around circling above you, uh, eating the plankton. And at one of the dives on our last trip, we had 28 mantas. And these mantas can be as large as 16, 18 feet wide. Wow. They're huge, beautiful animals. But the reason why this is funny is I was taking stills and I was sitting there and all of a sudden Paul was shining his lights at me. And I'm thinking, well, you don't want to know what I'm thinking. You'd have to do a lot of bleeps. But <laughs> I'm, thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, dude, you have no light etiquette. Stop shining your lights in my face. Stop, stop, stop. What's the matter with and, that guy? Well, and so he kept shining them at me. And I'm, I turn off my lights on my camera. And I'm, I'm just like, stop, stop. And then I realized he was filming me on purpose. There is another guest that often shows up at the Manta Night Dive that's known as Frank the Friendly Moray. It's a, <laughs> a, it's a large green undulated moray. That's and it had, a moray. <laughs> it had curled itself into my BC and was wrapped around my stomach and had its head by my head. And it was just hanging out. And it must have been there for a minute and a half before I even noticed it. And I kind of, you know, I kind of looked down and kind of went, okay, and kept video. <laughs> and, uh, and because well, you were stayed- sitting still, he just decided you were a rock. I, yeah, he just thought he would hang out and try to get some of the fish that were attracted to the lights that I was uh, using for for my camera and video, and it was pretty wild. I, All right, I, so <laughs> so since we've totally derailed this conversation, we're on toys and geeky things. I need to share one of the next toys that I'm purchasing. If you Uh-oh. go to tinyurl.com/studiolive24, this is a mixer from Presonus. It's a a 24 channel mixer. That has FireWire, but you can control it from another PC remotely or from an iPad or an iPhone. And uh, it does record to hard disk all off of these things and has an incredible amount of routing. So you can use it in in an automation setup, like in a studio, or you can use it in a live sound um, setup. Also has effects built in and, of course, Presonus preamps, which are amazing. And it's about twenty five hundred bucks. Yow. It's amazing. For that price, it's freaking URL? amazing. Tinyurl.com slash studio live twenty-four. There are so many gadgets. I Carl. Oh, that looks awesome. Um Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean it's not it's not the thing that I do, but I, I can totally get this because I whenever I'm taking photos and I start to bring them into Lightroom just to make really minor adjustments. I, I don't like massive adjustments to photos, yeah. but you know, minor adjustments and this kind of thing where you can get much more precision mm-hmm. uh, out of mm-hmm. the audio, that makes sense. That's very cool. Well, and you know, 24 channels is good. I have a 16 channel Mackie and I'm geeking out here. I'm sorry, Mackie, a mixer with Firewire. So I recorded Damien Dempsey on this, but I didn't have enough channels. So I had to submix. I had to take another mixer <laughs> and eight channels down to four channels. So I, you know, I basically, you know, basically had a mix of a mix. So, 
In order Did it to work? Do the, yeah, it worked great, but I could have used the extra channels. You know, I could have used the extra eight channels on the board itself. That would have been yeah, great. Cool. So, yeah. So that's my next thing. All right. Awesome. You guys so it looks discuss. like we need a hell of a lot more than 5000 bucks across us. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably. There's always time for more toys. Oh, absolutely. They don't call me Gadget Girl for nothing. All right. Uh, should we get back on the subject? Because I, I got some questions. Oh, sure. You know so, me, SQL. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking from a developer's perspective here. So I'm using Entity Framework, and I'm doing a code-first design. So it's just going to generate the database for me right off the bat. Because it's a very convenient way for me to iterate rapidly. Right? This is how I show my customer what I'm building. I'm able to build stuff very quickly, and it works, and so on. So I don't want to give up that tool, Kim. I like that tool a lot. But I as totally that get app it. becomes successful... I'd like a checklist. What do I need to fix? What does this do badly? Um, each tool is going to have pros and cons. And of course, the rapid application development is the the huge pro. And I would definitely use that as a potential or initial prototype. But I would analyze at least the six or eight tables that might end up becoming the monsters, as I call them, um, and and start to see if there's any potential inefficiencies in these tables. I Something that happens a lot when you've got a bunch of stakeholders in a room, you know, somebody says, oh, we should add a couple of columns for X or Y or Z. And then somebody else goes, hey, gee, Bob, that's a good idea. We should also add this and this and this. And the schema starts to get kind of out of control. And one of the things that I would tend to do, something that I, I really try to strategize for is something called vertical partitioning. And that's taking the kind of core critical columns and leaving those in a, a a more critical table, but then some of these other uses that maybe might not ever get used or have totally different access patterns, they might be best off in a separate table. Like a, a great example, imagine products and mm-hmm. products has all sorts of different columns and attributes in it. You've got a, a price list or well, you've got a price, I should say. So you've got a product, you've got a price, you've got a, a tiny uh, image like a, a thumbnail, but then you've right. got the full image if they want to zoom in and you've got an installation guide and you've got a troubleshooting guide and you've got a blah, blah, blah. And you can think of all these attributes that you could have for a product. If you make that one products table incredibly wide, then when you go to do a scan of, let's say, just product and product name and product price and a couple of other things, you might have to end up putting all that data into cash when most of the time you're not using it. If you had a, a products table that was just the core critical columns that were narrower, then you would actually get more products on a page and the table would have fewer pages and putting that data set into cash would be easier. Sure. Then you know, when somebody looks up a product, because at that point they're drilling in, right? You've given them something on the web, which is a list of the 400 refrigerators that you sell, but now they've clicked <laughs> on, well, you know what I mean, but yeah. you, you get to this refrigerator. Now you want to see, you know, what options it has and what are the accessories and what are the, what is the installation guide? Because it has ice and water and blah, blah. So you want to drill through. But at that point, it's a singleton lookup. You know which product you want. So going to this product details table, this separate table for a singleton lookup is no big deal. It's a really cheap operation and you're only ending up putting all this extra information into cash as these products are accessed, which 
might not be ever for, you know, the really expensive refrigerators or, and I, I'm just, you're just much more efficiently using the resources that you have. Right. And so it, it, that's something that I think a lot more about for the bigger tables. It, you know, for a small table, if you only have 10 products, you know, it, it's not going to matter as much. But if you're a Kmart, Walmart, you know, Amazon, you've got millions of products. You yeah. can't, necessarily have all of that data in cash all the time. Um, if you can, if you can afford having two or three terabytes of memory, great. But that is not what I see. I mean, the norm out there is still the 32s, 64s, 128s. I mean, at the high end, yes, I do see a terabyte of RAM, but that's just not the common scenario. So we have to think in terms of using the resources that we have as efficiently as possible. And sloppy design doesn't do that. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I'm concerned about the the specific things that that different ORMs do that are just sort of lazy. I I mean I I would hope that they don't do the really dumb things like repeating columns and stuff. I just think that they probably don't put certainly don't put good indexes in place, but don't deal with uniqueness well. Like uh, have you found tables that don't even have primary keys in them? Oh yeah. I I've found everything from databases that have no indexes whatsoever. You know, actually Richard, it's funny. I did a run as with you a few years back and, and we ended up calling it something like Kim Trip indexes everything. And somebody sent me an email. Right. Which said, I listened to your webcast because my developers had told me. So this is the person. They said that their developers had told them that SQL Server indexes for you so that they, they didn't need to worry about it. And they uh. ended up. They, they went hmm. into their database and they found no indexes whatsoever. Wow. And they just, they were just shocked that there was this misunderstanding. And it, it does happen a lot. People think if I create a primary key, SQL Server puts the indexes on there. So SQL Server indexes for me. You know what I mean? Like they take yeah. A equals B and they think it equals C and it doesn't. And so there's a lot of misconceptions. So yes, I've seen databases that have no indexes. I've seen databases that just have the primary keys and unique keys because SQL Server does have to enforce uniqueness through right. an actual index. So those get indexes. But like, here's a really common mistake. Um, foreign keys don't have an index. The, a foreign key is not unique, right? A foreign key is, is like the department ID column in the employees table. So right. you can have hundreds of employees in department 42. So there isn't an index on the department's table, or sorry, there isn't an index on the employee's table for the department's column. And what happens later if departments get modified is that SQL Server has to see if there's anyone in that department, which might end up causing a table scan. Like, even if people just went and created indexes on foreign keys, they could probably solve a tremendous number of performance problems. You know, I think you could probably just give us five minutes on table scans and why they're evil and how to avoid them. And with that one tip, you'd make so many friends on this show. Sure, sure. I, so I, let's start with the concept of a scan in general. A scan is where SQL Server has to go to a structure and exhaustively read that structure. The bigger the structure, the more expensive the scan. And in SQL Server, there's there's really two types of scans. There's a, a full table scan, which can happen if there's no indexes whatsoever, or if your query doesn't have an index that's useful, they could do a full table scan. But there's also something called an index scan. So just because you hear the 
word scan, it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. An index scan might be a reasonable approach to gathering data. For example, the, the example that I gave earlier, if you want just, let's say, a product and a price, and there's an index that has the product name and the price in it, and just those, and you want every product and every price, or I should say every price or all of the prices for the products, then scanning that index would be a reasonable way to get to the data. But if you did a table scan that had the description and all these other things, then that's going to be a very expensive approach to getting that data. So, so that's what happens when you don't index properly, table scans. Yeah, you tend to get a lot more table scans when there's no indexes yeah. or you don't have effective indexes for the types of queries that you're running. We ran so, in, yes, I absolutely. ran into that problem myself when we started uh, our stats app, you know, where we could look to see how many downloads we had for a particular show between this date and that date, right? So that oh, date yeah. became a very important thing to be indexed. <laughs> and of course it wasn't, you know, and so then we're sitting there waiting and waiting, waiting and timing out. But we had so much data in the database by the time that we discovered, by, well, I say we, the royal we, by the time, you know, I figured out what was going on, there was so much data in the database that it wouldn't add the, the index. Oh my God, oh, yeah. Carl, this is such a great example. Yeah, a great example of what not to do. This is why I'm a developer, no, not a DBA. This is a great discussion for me to take a second on because date-related queries are incredibly common. And yeah. there's there's concepts around indexing that are really important. There's this thing called a primary key. And a primary key is a relational integrity concept. It, relational theory says that every table must have a primary key. Now, an RDBMS like SQL Server doesn't require a primary key, but in general, it's good to have a primary key. In SQL Server, a primary key is automatically enforced by a clustered index. However, a clustered index defines the table's physical structure, essentially how that table is ordered. And not all primary keys are good clustering you keys. You mean how the columns in the table are ordered? How the data itself is ordered, how the rows themselves are oh, ordered. Okay. So like if, if you have the products table and you end up clustering it by product name, you'd literally have the products in the order by the name of the product. If you did product ID, they'd be ever increasing by the ID. Hmm. What's interesting though with yours is yours was on show dates and you wanted to start doing a whole bunch of queries, you know, find a show between January and March that right. was on this topic or by this speaker exactly. or, or whatever. Um, and what's interesting is date can often make a fantastic clustering key, at least the leading column of the clustering key, so that your data is ordered by date, but also has an ever-increasing pattern so that new shows essentially go to the end and the shows themselves don't end up basically creating a lot of fragmentation in this mm. table as they get inserted. But you wouldn't want to necessarily make that your primary key. Your right. primary key still could be show ID because if somebody says, hey, I want this show and I want to look up all the details and they know it's show 42, then right. again, that singleton lookup is best with a non-clustered index. Yeah, I fixed so, it by creating a new table with the right index and then, you know, moving the data across. That's basically how I fixed it. But, you know, in all in... All of the other shows that didn't have as many downloads as .NET Rocks, it was no problem just to go ahead and add the index and let it rebuild it. But there was just, for some reason, way too much data, uh, you know, because of because of the logs that get put into the database. There was way too oh, much so data the actual to creation was expensive. Yeah, it was it was taking too long and timing out, and there wasn't any way for me to fix it. So, 
But when one of the things we did was we decomposed that table into years. Right. Um, uh, that's is, great. Yep. So you yeah, partition- which you I think is an interesting discussion when you deal with journal data like this, yep. where once it's written, it never changes. Right. So the current data is only for the last year. Yeah, that's an ideal solution. I, I'm a big fan of physically partitioning tables that especially are date related data, yeah. where the new data is hot, active, OLTP, and the older data is is read only for the most part. Yep. It's a great thing to do because if you left it all in one table, just like you said, sometimes as those tables get large, they become very hard to manage. And there's no point in doing all this management on data that's read only. Right. So by separating it into a separate table, you can build your indexes on it once. You can even use something called fill factor equals 100, which will essentially make those tables as compact as they could possibly be. Mm. And then you never have to do anything else again. Statistics are up to date. The indexes aren't fragmented. And then you're only having to do regular maintenance on the current OLTP data, which is smaller, and then it's easier to do. So yeah, I'm a big fan of physically partitioning data by year into a separate table by year. So that's and That's I great. should also say the database is in SQL Azure. So just an added thing. It's great. Yeah, no, I know. I know you great. guys have done that. Yeah. But it's a good question. You know, I, I, where do you fall on the whole SQL Azure thing, Kim? Are, are you finding customers using it now? Um, I, I, I'm still finding a lot of folks are starting to ask about it, starting to think about it, but the specific scenarios that I tend to be called in on just, they still aren't Azure related. And I, I know there's a lot of larger implementations on Azure. Um, you know, I talk to folks on the SQL team and some of the things that they're doing and it's, it's incredibly interesting, but I still personally haven't even really dove in and touched anything Azure, at least no production Azure databases, because all my customers have the databases in-house right. with their own DBA teams. And just like we talked about to- earlier, there's still, you know, the security issues or concerns and uh, downtime concerns, etc. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they're behind the firewall and their data isn't accessible through the internet, you know, they that was the five nines of reliability that Microsoft was talking in the days of DNA. And, of course, you de- throw the Internet in there and you have nowhere near five nines of reliability. Yeah. And I think that's what you were alluding to. We were talking about in that Dev Connections uh, a panel discussion about the cloud where it just sort of became obvious that to everybody that, oh, no, it's going to go down. Your, ser- your service level agreement is nowhere near, you know, all the time up. Well, I think they even have in the contract a certain amount of downtime is acceptable per month. And I, sure. I, I think it's measured in hours even. Yeah. And just that's not right for every database, for every environment. And, and maybe things will change. And right. I, I certainly know that the direction that the SQL team is making or taking moving forward, uh, with, you know, what they're putting into Azure and the, the release cycle and, it's going to be interesting, but again, for my customers, it, not so much. Well, Kim, before we before we say goodbye, uh, I opened the show with a call out to the accidental DBA stuff. Tell me just briefly what's that all about? Well, at SQL Skills, there's a few of us that work on different projects, different types of databases, and different environments. And one thing that we've started to see a lot more of is developers or even companies that don't have a full-time DBA, they have somebody that has to know a little bit about SQL but doesn't want to know everything about SQL. And a lot of our classes in the past have been pretty much 
you know, getting to know everything there is about different aspects of SQL Server. But there is this accidental DBA or junior DBA out there that needs to know enough to keep their head above water, to keep the lights on, you know, to keep things running. And so we created a, a series of blog posts around the top things that we think every, every shop that, that has a SQL Server database, you know, with any critical data on it whatsoever, the things that they should know. So there's different categories like setup and configuration, backups, maintenance, security, troubleshooting performance, high availability, general troubleshooting, you know, IOs, blocking, deadlocks. So there's a variety of blog posts and we also have a class. So we created a three day, what we call immersion event for accidental DBAs. And again, it's, it's meant for junior DBAs, developers that really want to understand more about what's going on with SQL Server, mm -hmm. but they don't need to know, you know, all the internals and, right. and they're not going to be a full time DBA. So it's just the, the core critical stuff, but not quite as deep. Although some of the posts do go deep. You just don't necessarily have to memorize all of that if that's not your full-time job. Well, very good. And as I said, there's lots and lots of content up there. 30 days <laughs> worth of content? Yeah, yeah there's and, a and I think a big piece of that is just knowing when to call for help, what you should fix yourself and what you should bring an expert in for. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's the whole team. It's Jonathan Cajayas, Aaron Stellato. Hey, uh, Richard, you spoke to Aaron Stellato on Runaz recently, I yeah? I did indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she'll be on Runaz in a couple of weeks. Runaz awesome. Radio. Awesome. One of those other shows we do. Well, you know, SQL straddles the line between the developer and the IT pro. So yeah, we sort of absolutely. bounce back and forth on that. I think any given conversation I have with you, Kim, could have gone in either place. Mm. I, yeah, I agree. There's so many different areas of SQL Server. And, and I think the thing that's just frustrating is I don't think a lot of people even know that they need to know this. <laughs> right. So... Yeah, this stuff's still important. Well, Kim, thanks very much for enlightening us again. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. I love you, man. <laughs> love you too, man. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a toy boy Life is hard